Welcome in to AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent podcast and video stream dedicated to the old American wrestling association. My name is Chris Tubbs. I am one part of it. I bring us in, but then, of course, I don't do the heavy lifting. I hand it over to the voice of Minnesota wrestling, the one and only Mick Karch. Mick, I just put you over. I hope you're happy. Okay, I'm going to remove you from the screen because I know that you're having some problems. That being said, that sounded really bad, but we'll get back to it here. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, nice, nice to see you, Mick. Nice to see you. Great to see you, too. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate every time somebody mentions my name, the word heavy. Mm-hmm. It's associated with it. Heavy lifting, heavy physique, you know. I, can we remove that? Can we, you know? No, no. That is part of the vernacular on this show, Mick. Uh, I know one thing. We're going to get it out of the way. Of course, you see, you know, 7th Avenue Pizza. Want to thank everybody at 7th Avenue, uh, 7th Avenue Pizza. They still do a, a great job in terms of the best high-quality pizza on the market. 7thAvenuePizza.com. Check it out. The best pizza. I have it when I'm watching the Vikings for crying out loud. Now, I mean, I can't, you know, pizza and football, they just go together. So I uh, got that as well as Soda Stick. Uh, you can get your uh, A, uh, your uh, AWA Unleashed hoodies. I'm going to bring right here. You can get your personalized hoodies, Mick, because now we're starting to get into fall season. Hoodie weather up here. So go to AWA uh, Unleashed at uh, SodaStickCO.com. Get your name personalized, and uh, it's black and white, really cool. And uh, type in Unleashed as a promo code. You get 15% off. We've also got uh, some new swag coming down the line. Uh, we've got a fun guest. I'm trying to get through all this because I know we got a lot of stuff to get to. But uh, you also, Mick, have a big, big, big update. Uh, we're almost a heavy update regarding uh, what we've got coming up with all the heavy lifting that you've been doing. One more shot. One this is more, good. Have you lifted? More. This is good. This is good, Mick. This is a good thing. You know, we've been talking about the AWA reunion number two, and now we've got a date and a place locked in. It is going to be October 29th from noon to four, and it is going to be at Embassy Suites in Bloomington on American Boulevard. Now, further details as far as admission costs, the final lineup of who's going to be there, so on and so forth, will be posted as it becomes available on our AWA Unleashed fans page and also on the Slick Mick Old School Wrestling page. But we wanted to get the date out there, and seating is going to be very limited. So when you get all the info, uh, particularly how to uh, pre-order your admission, do it right away. I think they can accommodate a couple hundred people, and uh, they're going to go quickly. But October 29th, Embassy Suites, American Boulevard in Bloomington, and it's AWA reunion number two. Going to be a great day. I think somebody was actually calling me about it right then and there. So uh, apparently uh, somebody wants to get in on it, but that's great. I know we've been looking forward to it. But again, mark off your calendar uh, for uh, for that day. That being said, Mick, this is an old school podcast. We focus on the AWA, but at the same time, you have your foot still firmly in the wrestling product today, working a lot with Midwest uh, All-Star Wrestling. So 
and you and I, I have been to zero wrestling and, you know, you know, we're both fans of, of AEW and, you know, we watch WWE, we watch impact. It's hard to look at the old school and then try and talk about the new school because I, I feel like there's a disconnect from fans. And I think today you have got the perfect guest for us to maybe bridge that gap and somebody that can talk about it that was, you know, part of it years ago, but yet is still very much involved in the product today. And I feel like out of all of the conversations that we've had, this might be probably one of the most objective, uh, honest conversations that I think we're going to have to date. I think so. And, you know, talk about old school and going back in time and what have you. I, I, I can't believe I, it, I think it's 33 years since I first met this gentleman. And you you alluded to the fact, Chris, that he is just as involved today, if not more so than he was 33 years ago. And, and, and it's hard to get a guest on this program that we can say that about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's a great friend. And I'm telling you, you know, we're we're in the Twin Cities area and talk about a guy who's over in the Twin Cities area, let alone all over the country, all over the world, for crying out loud. Let's bring him in. Much anticipated. There he is. <laughs> there he is, ladies and gentlemen. Gentlemen, dynamic. Jerry. <laughs> Jerry, we wanted to get somebody on here who was going to really pop the ratings for us. We'll oh, no. do that on a future episode, but right now we're going to go with you. <laughs> I was, I was going to say you need to raise your standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, a, low, a, a low bar, Jerry, is still a bar. I know. I you're, know. You're, you're looking fantastic, my friend. We've got a lot to talk about. I mentioned, you know, you and I going back literally 33 years, which is just incredible to me that that much time has gone by but uh chris i'm going to let you kick it off with the uh the opening question here and uh, we're going to have a fun ride yeah absolutely and uh, again i mean there's a lot that we're going to get to here but we're going to you know try and go chronologically the best that we can so uh jerry first of all i gotta say i think the weather is probably better where you're at than when we're at just for the record it's beautiful today it's it's supposed to get up to I think, the upper 80s here and not a cloud well few clouds in the sky but it's beautiful nice. you, you can tell mick yeah mick and i are both inside with the uh with the shade shut i don't uh, i don't know what that means uh, so i want to go back to like before you got into wrestling let's start kind of from the genesis here oh boy what, what do you know <laughs> in wrestling no oh I, well I, i'm just gonna know what you want to tell yeah <laughs> i i blame soldat ustinov oh god because, you know, I, I grew up watching wrestling since I was six years old. So the first time I watched wrestling was in 1969. And I loved it right away. But, uh, you know, growing up, I never dreamed of becoming a professional wrestler. Because back then it was still uh, Land of the Giants. And so it just so happened to, you know, and I did quite a few sports in high school and stuff. But, uh it wasn't until probably I was 23, a friend of mine started dating Soldat Ustinov, who is six foot six, well over 300 pounds, doing the Russian gimmick. And uh, 
So we went to go watch him wrestle one time and met him and told him I always loved wrestling. He says, well, you should give it a try. I said, no, I'm too small. He says, no, they'll match up guys your size. Yeah, right. <laughs> so he said, well, come on down to uh, meet the promoter, Eddie Sharkey at the time. And so I went down and met Eddie and saw his camp, but I knew I wasn't ready. I was probably 155 pounds soaking wet. So I thought, well, I'll just start working out a little bit or working out again, I should say. And then in a couple of years down the road, if there's something open, maybe I'll still pursue it. So I'd never, I just started working out again. And at the time I'd been doing a job in the summer, I was laying telephone cable underground in a, uh, one of my coworkers, we got to be really good friends. So we'd go to the gym and work out together. And, and he was a wrestling fan also. But uh, so it was probably about two years later, he came to me and he said, hey, I found out Brad Rangens has a camp he's throwing together at the last minute. He's taking $1,000 off. He says, you want to try it? And I said, sure. So took out a loan, went through Brad's camp, and that's how it all started. I got to say, cool. though. One of the things that uh, made me think maybe I can actually do this is we went to go see an indie show, uh, uh, some bar show somewhere. And after seeing some of the matches, I, I, that's when I said, maybe I can do this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you're implying there, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we certainly saw it all back in the day. And, you know, before we move ahead, you mentioned Brad Ringens. Yes. And I don't think Brad gets the credit on the national wrestling scene for not only how good he was, but how freaking strong this guy was. He, Talk about Brad. He had a gift. He had a gift from God. I'll tell you, he was made for wrestling. And I'm not talking about pro. I'm talking about amateur wrestling. Any guy who medals in the Pan Am games and he was on two Olympic teams and it's sad that the, the year, the whole world pretty much had him slated for taking the gold is the year we boycotted. But uh, he was incredible. And I couldn't think of a better teacher or a coach. I actually called him probably about six months ago. And he, he's hard to get a hold of. But uh, Yes, he is. I uh, got his number from Brock, and uh, I called Brad, left a message, and the thing was like two and a half, three months later, Brad called back, and I just, I just thanked him. I said I can't think of anyone better for a coach, and I thanked him for his, his. Uh, he was very straightforward and honest. He didn't try and, you know, make any false promises or anything like that. And I learned so much. The the things he said the first day of camp, I still say when I do seminars. I tell all the students and all the wrestlers what brad told me the first day of camp and there's several things but uh yeah so i i, I called brad and i finally got a hold of him and i just wanted to thank him so that's but, yeah, he's amazing chris well, what, uh, I, I was just gonna say well, what are what are some of the things that that he told you that really stick with you he said uh wow there's so much one of the things that really stuck with me was he said, and he wasn't trying to uh, discourage us or anything. He just wanted to be blunt and honest. And the, one of the first things he said was, don't go into this thinking you're going to be a big superstar and a multimillionaire because chances are it's not going to happen. Hmm. Wow. And it's true. He, and he said, look at the amount of full-time jobs there are with large companies compared to the amount of people pursuing those jobs. 
it's a very it's a tough grind and well, I, to tell you the truth i never hit the big money run i you know i was fortunate enough to make a living at it for i think 17 years out of the 24 the first seven years i had to have a regular job to support my wrestling habit till i finally was able to make a living at it but um I mean, so I was fortunate in that aspect where I was able to make a living in it, but I never hit the big money run or anything. So. Wait a minute. Wait a minute now. You what? can't tell me that those matches between you and Judge Randy Gusto, back at Ropers and Fridley, didn't set you up for retirement <laughs> 30 some years ago? Come you on. You be saying that in Wally Carbo's voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah I, talking about Brad Ring, it's real quick. You know, we're, we're, we've tried to line up Brad for this AWA reunion and, and talk about a hermit. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but he really kind of, you know, he sees secluded a little bit. So just to hear you talking about him and giving him his props is, is tremendous. Chris, I know you got a question about uh, Jerry's first matches. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to ask you, so... How long did you train with Eddie before you got your first match? And and take me through the process of getting into your first match and how you feel that it went. Well, Brad's the one who trained me. And Brad's camp was three months long. <clears throat> and it was four nights a week, three hours a night. But I, you know, and I knew I wasn't ready after that. And, and uh, so Brad still let me keep coming when he had other camps going on and Actually, seven years in, he called me and asked me to uh, come down and help him a little bit with the in-ring stuff with the, the camp he had been running. But uh, And then I'd, I'd also go down to Eddie's, wherever he would have his school set up and keep practicing and stuff. So I, you know, I can't really say how long exactly, but I just knew I didn't want to go out there and embarrass myself, which I did. <laughs> now, actually, my first match it was for a, a tv taping in new Ulm at a national guard armory i think it, i forgot the name of the guy uh mick you would remember i think paul albert not paul alberstein that was in chicago um golly i can't remember his name now but he was doing a tv taping like for a pilot and that i rode there with johnny love that's the first day i met johnny love and we're still friends to this day that's fantastic. We're actually going the first week of October to go see, visit Johnny for a few days down in Phoenix. He moved to Phoenix. But um, so that night I had my first match. Actually, the first match I had was a tag match against the Terminators. Remember Riggs and. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. And then I had three matches that night. The second match was a six man tag against Derek Dukes. Uh, Steve Olsonowski and Tom Zink. Oh, my God. And then the third match actually had to have a normal match against Tom Burton, who I went through Brad's camp with. So that was the very first time I wrestled. I had three different matches that night. God, just tremendous memories, you know, and the names. And we're going to talk about, uh, about Mr. Burton here in a little bit. You, you know, you were such a mainstay with Eddie's promotion, uh, Pro Wrestling America. At first it was George's, and then, of course, after that it was Ropers and Fridley. I always called it the snake pit because of the intensity of the fans. And, and I mean, just it was a phenomenon at the time. 
and the roster was great. You kind of had a mix of the younger guys like yourself getting into the business, and every once in a while, Eddie would bring in, you know, a, a Mr. Saido or a Road Warrior Hawk or whatever. But of, the, of those initial matches at Ropers, who were some of your favorite opponents that come to mind that, that people might not normally talk about? Oh, well, one was Ricky Rice, of course. Yes. I mean, talk about entertaining. He's he's the first guy to make me break character in the ring. And it was, in, you know, you know, he was doing that crazy profit gimmick. You yes. Know, yes. So wacky. And, and uh, I, I loved his promos when he's talking about sitting on the mountain of Banff and smoking the moss with the goat and all that. Oh, that's right. Out there. It was crazy. It was hilarious. While we were at a, a VFW show, I think it was in Savage or something. And uh, they were selling popcorn and peanuts and stuff. Well, when Ricky was doing his thing, going around the ring, touching foreheads and stuff, once he got in the ring, people started throwing peanuts in the ring. And he's running around stomping on peanuts going, hello, peanut butter sandwiches. And I, I had to hide my face. Uh, he was doing it as like a, it was a cross between Ricky the Prophet and Sheik Adnan, I think. And Sheik Adnan going yeah. there too, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your Highness! <laughs> I know I want to talk about another guy that I know you're very familiar with from back in the Roper days. A guy that, to me, what a tragedy that this guy didn't get his just due before he passed, and that was Larry Cameron. Oh, I know. Unbelievable. He was amazing. And the matches he had with Tommy Ferrara were incredible. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's another, uh, you know, I loved, I remember uh, working, oh, well, there, there's so many guys back then, like uh, Horace the Psychopath, J.B. Trask, and Tommy Ferrara, and uh, of course, Sean, and I'm trying to think, Gollers, you know, it was much fun. It was, like you said, it was a very eclectic crew, and oh. a variety of styles, and people, and you know, it was, it was weird. We just, uh, it was a special time. I even told Sean probably about a year and a half ago, like, we talked and I told him, I said, you know what? I said, it was probably only about what, two years into our careers. And we had that feud up there. And I said, you know, we, we still didn't know what we were doing, but I said, that's some of my favorite work of my whole career because we got together just about every day, looking at tapes, whatever we could find, studying. And we would actually even, Sean was great with computers, so we would actually go to Kinko's and he would print up posters and these the little four by six cards and tickets. Sure. And, and we would go paper the town, you know, for Eddie and stuff. And so we did a little bit of everything together. But when we got in the ring, we had everybody thinking we hated each other's guts. And I told him that why that was some of my favorite work of my entire mm -hmm. career. It, it, it was absolute magic. No no question so, about it. I, I want to, sorry, Mike, I, I just want to follow up with that. So when, when you and Sean are kind of, you know, kind of starting this all out and, and, you know, at that point, really, you didn't have, you know, access to a lot of video. Like, how did you guys, did you guys try and, or, you know, mainly Sean, try and find, like, tapes or, like, some sort of matches from other parts of the country or, you know, because tape trading at that point, I, I think was just starting to really become a, a big, big thing, at least for, you know, for the fans. I can't remember how or where we would get our tapes. Um, but I know 
when RF Video had their kiosk at the Mall of America, I'd go down. Oh, huge! Yeah, buy tapes there too. But yeah, we would watch tapes of Mexico, Japan, England, whatever we could find, and then that we kind of we loved it all. So we just tried to incorporate all the different styles in our matches. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, you know, talking about Sean and again, you know, it, it gets to be so melancholy and, and kind of emotional sometimes about how much time has passed because I'll see the old SNR footage when, you know, we had you two on there uh, doing a contract signing with Ray Webby, you know, or what have you. And I, I know one clip in particular, you, you two got into a little slap fest. Oh, my know, God. Yeah. You know, be, before slap fests were, uh, were a common thing, but you guys absolutely did create magic uh, in the ring. No question about it. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, a little more about Sean, but I want to talk about Tom Burton and uh, you had a series for those fans around the country who are not familiar. The PWA Eddie Sharkey's promotion was red hot here for several years, you know, especially after the AWA was kind of in its decline, but Tom Burton and yourself had some hellacious matches. And there's a, a, a shot of the, the late Tom Burton right there. Talk to me about Tom and specifically, Jerry, I want to ask you, Tom made it to a certain level in the business. You know, he worked as, as Tom Davis. You know, of course, he, he worked in the AWA for a while. I always thought that Tom had the potential to go farther in the business than he did. What's your take on that? Well, here's a funny story about Tom and I. Before, years before uh, going to Brad's camp, I was working at a dealership down in uh, Lakeville, Minnesota. It was called, I think it was Jeff Belzer's. Sure, here you go. And uh, I was in the parts department, and Tom had started working there. I think he was detailing stuff so he was with the service department or something like that and while him and my manager didn't get along or see eye to eye so because I was in the parts department I was instantly the enemy (laughs) so (laughs) Tom wasn't fond of me just because I was guilty by association with my (laughs) well then (laughs) a few years later first day of camp I see Tom come in I'm like oh god oh man so going through camp and you know when we're going through drills and stuff and rolling around and whatever tom would always give me a little extra jab and stuff here and there you know but uh after camp and stuff uh, tom was a go-getter he really wanted it and he actually called me because he said do you want to help me with the awa and want to do some squash matches and set up the ring and i said sure so we would go get the ring at the warehouse, bring it to the Rochester Civic Center. Tom and I would set it up, you know, do three squash matches each, tear down the ring, bring it back. And so uh, we got to be really close. And Tom even said, he says, you know, he says, I was rough on you in camp because I want to make sure that you really want to do that take. Mm-hmm. And back then, even, you know, probably one of the smallest guys in the business. Yeah. There was yeah. a even on indies, it wasn't a very welcoming atmosphere. Right. I'll never forget. One place, I can't remember exactly where or who it was, but walk. You know, you were taught always go around and introduce yourself. Guy, he just looks at. Yeah, the monster. 
and he did he didn't say nothing to me didn't shake my hand nothing well i get done wrestling and come in the back then he comes up to me to shake my hand and going brother i didn't know you could work and i'm thinking to myself why do you want to shake my hand now he already showed me what a butthole you are (laughs) (laughs) but 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 i think that was tom was a good sized guy you know that's the name beef burton you know oh he was a beast yeah so i think he looked at me the same way because when i went through camp i was 170 so i wasn't exactly big but but uh you know there was a lot of times where you know people would take liberties or uh, you know, just just i don't know why you know because they probably thought i didn't belong but I always kept a little voice in my head that said, never let them make you quit. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Anyway, so bouncing back to Tom. So we did a lot of uh, stuff like that. And then actually one time, uh, AWA, I can't remember who in the office called and said, hey, we're doing a, a house show up in Alexandria, Minnesota. Do you up and do the ring with Tom and have a regular match with Tom? So this is a very, uh, this is a night I'll never forget because uh, we got get up there, set up the ring, show's starting, and they, they're hadn't, having a ref bump, so they needed another ref. And for Wendy Richter and Judy Martin. Oh, boy. And because I was the smallest guy there, someone says, how about you? And I said, <laughs> and Judy goes, don't worry, I'll talk you through it. And she talked through it i i couldn't believe it i mean i learned so much from judy just that night and i even called her about a year ago and i thanked her i said you're not going to remember that but i i, but I said well i, I want to call her and thank her because i never forgot that night and it was just amazing how much i learned just that night. and after that night i had a referee shirt in my bag my entire career and it came in handy quite a few times. That but, is uh, tremendous. Yeah, so that all, you know, kind of happened because of t- And then, remember when Dennis Carluzzo and Eddie Sharkey ran those couple combined shows? Sure do. Hey, back then, you know, there was no internet. There weren't cell phones or anything. So, and I always tell guys in the seminars, too, I said, I always had an 8 by 10 I had a tape of some of my matches. And also, I had a resume, just like... I mean, wrestling is a job. It's a bit funny. So I was resume about who trained me, what companies I'd worked for, and stuff like that for uh, wrestling references. And so um, that probably the very first one of those two combined shows, one of my favorites, too, growing up was Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. Yes. And so I met him, and I gave him my resume, 8 by 10 videotape, everything. And he called and said, do you want to come down and work for Memphis? And, he, and I said, yeah, because Tom had already been down there, too, doing the Dirty White Boy gimmick. Mm-hmm. Tony Anthony, was it? Yeah, so, Tony Anthony, yeah. Yeah, so, and Tom was nice enough, since he already was living down there and had an apartment, he let me pay really cheap rent, and I slept on his couch. So that whole, that was over the winter of 90 and 91. And then when I went in, you know, I... It was a it was a tough gig because you're fifty bucks a night and then it's all driving, you know. It was six days a week, twice on Saturday, mm-hmm. so it was a it was a full time territory and it was a great experience. But after I went 
a little bit in debt, I said, all right, time to move back home and get a job to support my wrestling habit again. Yeah. So I moved back to Minneapolis. And then the next winter is when uh, Eddie Gilbert called me and Sean and said, you want to do your feud down here in Global in Dallas? Which mm-hmm. we're like, so he said, well, I suggest you move to Nashville again because we're using And that's one thing I learned then was uh, if the budget got tight, they stopped flying people in. So if you move there and can drive to the shots, you still have a job. Mm-hmm. So I moved back to Nashville and lived with Tom again. And over that winter, Tom had been working for that UWFI group in Japan. Sure. Okay. And, uh, dude, they wanted to come over because they were using Billy Scott. They wanted me to train for like another, I think it was like 10 before they were going to bring me over. And this other Lucha company that brought me and Sean over said they wanted us now. So I said, yeah, I want to go. But uh, it was a very valuable experience to learn all kinds of stuff like that. But so Tom really helped me out along the way as far as, you know, getting me in with the AWA, uh, getting me a place to live when I worked for Memphis global and so yeah we got to be so go go ahead chris i i I just want to do a follow-up on uh on tom burton oh well why why, you go and ask him about tom burton because i want i want to follow up on uh on sean absolutely the 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 one thing jerry i'm sure you remember this one of the greatest lines in the history of snr i'm scared tom tom burton is out and you know he had been down and you know down south and i He's explaining how he had attained his success down there. And he meant to say, I cut the mustard. But of course, Tom said, that's when I cut the cheese. (laughs) (laughs) One of the the great lines of all time. And if anybody was going to say it, it was going to be Tom B. Burton. If he just said, pull my finger first and then busted out that line. There you go. There you but, go. Oh, that's hilarious. But yeah, I felt bad one time. You know, we had a good feud. And I never forget, we had the, this street fight match or something. And yes, yes. Uh, who was the big guy that was the boxer also? They were the... Uh, Jeff Warner? Yes. Yeah. So he taped up my fist to make it look like a street fight. Well, he he was a boxer, so he taped it up like a boxer. I had Tom in the corner and <laughs> him in the head. And because my fist was taped so compact and everything, I put a goose egg on his head. I felt so bad. <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, it's all right. Hey, good for the business. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Got to get it snug. Got to get it snug. Hey, your, uh, your whole feud with Sean, did you feel like, that was the one that put you on the map, like you and him, because it started here, but then you said, you know, they wanted to bring you down to global and, and have it there. Is that kind of the one that you feel kind of really could showcase what you and he could do? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't, and Sean and I have both said this. We don't, if Sean didn't move up to Minneapolis and we didn't meet each other, there's a good chance that our careers would have gone nowhere. And, and at the time, I guess, we were we wanted to make it more fun we were tired of just and i I hate to say this but i think 
people were lazy at the time. It was just a bunch of big guys lumbering mm-hmm. around doing, you know, clotheslines and hip tosses. And we wanted to make it more exciting. Did you feel like you had to do something to stand out then because of your size? Yeah. Uh, at that time, we had to do what the big guys couldn't. And I mean, and I, we weren't trying to hurt the business. We loved the business. And, but we just wanted to make it more exciting. And, and there, like I said, there was a lot of guys that didn't want to work with because of our size and didn't want to try things. So, and it, which is sad because we, I just wanted to go out and make it exciting. And at the same time, every time I went out there, I wanted to suspend everyone's belief and, and, uh, you know, make well, them- you know, if, if you think about it, Jerry, even 30 years ago that you guys were the precursor, the predecessor to so much of the wrestling business the way it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, look at all the small guys in the business or smaller guys, the Lucho, whatever whatever the case may be, you really did kind of set the standard even even going way back. I Yeah, I guess we were, I guess, ahead of our time, you could say. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, we were just trying to make it more exciting and instead of and like like I said, we had to do what the big guys couldn't do because mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't want to work with us. Yeah. So just to follow up on that, then, did you feel there was some resentment from some of the bigger guys? Because maybe you guys were doing something that was different or it wasn't this big, you know, fisticuff sort of slow lumbering big man matches that we had kind of been accustomed to? Well, you know, we still didn't know what we were doing. I mean, trust mm-hmm. me, I've, I've learned a lot from Baron Von Raschke and Sheik Adnan and a lot of the vets that would tell you, tell me, uh, where's the fire? Slow down. And they were right. So, you know, and it takes years and years to, you know, learn the, learn the craft. And I'm still learning. You never stop learning. And that's the sucky part about having to quit after 24 years is I knew I had a lot of room for improvement. And, uh, I, I'd be on my retirement tour. There was a lot of shows I was on with Ricky Morton just, you know, months before I had my retirement match. And I always watch Ricky. And when he get, when his match got done, I would just close the curtain, turn around and go, man, I suck. <laughs> so, so you never stop learning. But back then, you know, we were, we were just trying something different and trying to make it more exciting and still uh, believable. And, and, uh, Well, you know, I got to say, for people who weren't there at the time back then, and when I hear you say, you know, we weren't ready, we were still screwing up, blah, 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 you were lighting up places like Ropers at Fridley. I mean, the intensity, even though you might not have been as polished as you wanted to be back then, the crowds were lapping it up. I mean, you were were show stealers and showstoppers bar none. Well, we we wanted to make it as real as possible. Yeah. And like I said, I didn't want to go out there and embarrass myself. And so every time, I, and that was what was drilled in my head with Brad, because the curtain wasn't pulled open, wide open yet. Sure. Bill, you go out there and, sorry, I'm outside on the deck. Bugs are getting me. But you go out there and you make those people believe everything you're doing in that ring. And that was the, and that should still be the object nowadays. Absolutely. But, uh, and so that's what we did. We tried to make them believe every, and then it was even more nerve wracking when you're in a smaller, intimate venue like that. Cause everyone's even closer to the ring. 
Oh, my God, they were right on top of you. Yes. So, you know, you couldn't be talking to each other out there, you know, or, you know, you had to really, I mean, it was, we made it as real as possible without killing each other (laughs) for real. Man, I, you know, Jerry, I got to say, I mean, it's so refreshing and it's amazing to me that with everything that you accomplished in the business and continue to accomplish, and I'm talking about in your actual wrestling career, winning the ECW championship and so forth, that you would say, you know, it was kind of disappointing to you after 24 years to retire when you still had a lot to learn. I mean, that, that to me says so much about your character and your passion for the business, because a lot of hey, I want to, I want the championship. They put me over, you know. I'm, I'm, content. I'm content. I'm content. I'm happy. I'm content. Well, that's a lot of that is now with the ways people are broke into the business, because there's a lot of camps or schools out there that are just cash grabs. They don't absolutely care if you learn or if they don't care if you have a love for the business and the industry or, or you know, and and like Brad. It wasn't an easy camp. It was hard. It wasn't hard in a mean way, but it was rough. He made sure you wanted it. He was going to weed out who didn't want it because he didn't want to waste his time. And so it wasn't in a mean way, but he made sure that you really wanted to do this. And I think that's the problem nowadays. There's a lot of camps that are cash grabs and they just babysit you all the way through it. And you can and then right out of camp nowadays, everyone's pushed as a big superstar on an independent show in front of 30, 40 people, you know, mm-hmm. and then it just goes to their heads. And well, then you're in this for the wrong reason, because Brad told us the first day of camp, he said, first and foremost, professional wrestling is a business about making money. It's not about stroking our egos mm-hmm. because, oh. because anyone who do, does this for a significant amount of time is going to need surgeries. You will lose physically. And I even wow. asked, asked him, I said, even if we stay in really good shape? He said, yeah. He says, the human body isn't made for this. And boy, is he right. So I had to Wow. Ask, I've had eight surgeries. And five were after I retired from wrestling. I was like Humpty Dumpty. I had to get put back together again. Wow. So, so blatantly truthful. The first day of camp, he told us all this. And that's why I had to thank him. Because, boy, it he was he was right spot on on everything he told us well you have become a mouthpiece for this podcast in terms of the way at least i look at some of the stuff in the modern day era of pro wrestling with the cookie cutters and as you say cash grabs and you know you, you walk out the door and if you can bring 15 friends in to this uh, 50 seat building next week we're going to give you a replica championship belt. You know, I mean, it, it's so completely different, Jerry. And to hear you talk, and, and this is one of the things I've always loved about you, is your passion for the business. It's real, and you're a professional wrestler. And that that's, that's tremendous. Well, that's like I grew up always loving wrestling. But when I start, when I was going to Brad's camp and I learned what, the business was really about that's when i really developed a passion for it and really loved it even more and 
that's why I did everything I could to help the business and not hurt it. Like even up until a few months before my last match, if I was in a car full of heels, I'd have them drop me off a few blocks from the building and I'd walk the rest of the way. God, I... But wants to do that anymore, especially on social media. Oh, everybody's everybody's friends. You know, well, they're, they're lucky they have social media. They could use that to further angles instead yeah, absolutely. of using it after you just tried to kill each other in a death match. And the next day you're going, thanks for the match, bro. Much love. It's like, what are you oh, doing? Oh, man, yeah. I'm telling you, you are. are... Further the angle, you're, they're so fortunate to have all these avenues of getting out to the public. Like you said, years ago, there was no way of getting out to the public. We're lucky you had your show. Yeah, that was further angles on. Yeah. So do, do you feel, I mean, do you feel like they're not only misusing it, but I mean, back when the illusion, you know, when the business was kind of exposed, do you feel like they've kind of just, it's like, well, you know, actors in movies are, you know, we're playing a part, but then we're really this. Do you feel like they have to kind of approach it more and like we're an entertainer and we're playing a part more so than we're actually in this in this program then because it i don't know to me it kind of seems like it's there's this clear breakage of the the person on screen and the person off screen kind of like there would be with any other sort of you know television or or movie or whatnot no that's one thing brad taught us too he says never let them know the real you that's why years ago you had curtains up so people couldn't see in the back. And he said, Un unless obviously you run into them at the supermarket or something. But yeah. keep the mystique up. You know, it's like uh, when that masked magician came out and revealed all the secrets of magic. I don't want to know that. That's exactly right. I don't want to know the secrets. And even now when guys ask me, hey, will you watch my match? I go, sure. They go, well, we're going to, I go, don't tell me. I want to be surprised. Oh, man. I don't know in advance what's happening. That's what kills me about nowadays. Why do all the fans want to know everything in advance what's going to happen? I don't understand that. Do you, yeah. I mean, do you, are these the same people who say when they go to see a movie, I don't want to see any spoilers? There you go. Well, what, what the heck? Why do you want to know in advance? And I know what it is. It's a lot of them want to show off how much insider information they have to their buddies. But that just, to me, would ruin all the fun. You know, I am I am so with you on this. I I'm just you know enthralled by what you're saying because, man, you know w when somebody like me yeah. or Chris does it, you know, um, you know we, we come across as you know bitter or whatever. But you're Jerry Lynn, and you're telling it the way it is. Well, you know, I like the business. you know, yeah, do, I, do you feel do you feel like the social media and like all this? Do you feel is it is it good or bad for the business that all this information is out there and anybody can look up anything at any time? I think it can be both, but I think now the majority of it's bad. Yeah. And a lot of it's the boys' fault themselves because they want to leak all the dirty laundry that's happening in the back that the fans shouldn't even know about. What's the point in that? I don't understand that. It's, I know what it is. And this started years ago with the sheets and everything. They leak information. So the sheets and the websites and the podcasts will talk favorably about them and their matches and give them their. And so what? You know who will tell you that if you've had a good match or not? The fans. There you go. There On the fans will tell you if that was a good match or not. It's that simple. That's all you need. Why are you working for 
uh, other the, for the press, you should be working for the fans. Oh, yeah. And a lot of them aren't anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm but, with you. you know, and I, you know, I hope I don't come off as old and bitter. I'm not. I love the industry. I love the business. No, but no. I want. I, I think the boys should be doing their best to try and pull the curtain back shut. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and I, yeah, and I think, Jerry, I think, I think that's at the very beginning, I think we said this, is it's going to be objective. And I think this is great because to hear it from somebody like you who is actively involved in AEW, that I feel like it holds more weight rather than, you know, some of us, you know, just saying, you know, we, we think it's, we think it's a detriment, but to have somebody like you who's actively involved, I, I think I don't know about you, Mick, but I feel like it it holds a lot more weight right now. Absolutely, it does. And and Jerry knows, and, and I'm sure this will speak to some of what he's talking about. I don't like to go to a building where the fans are coming in and the guys are still in the ring going over their spots. Yes. Oh, yes. oh You know, I mean, and you see that more and more. I I don't get it. If I, I ran the show, I'd never let anyone do that. Absolutely. And you know, hour before the door is open, you get out of the ring. Yeah, and, and as you said, Jerry, too, a lot of times guys will go in there and they'll beat the shit out of each other for 30, 45 minutes. And then afterward, you know, they're they're out there with their arms around each other sitting at the bar or whatever it is. or the, And it, it absolutely takes away that suspension of disbelief. And, uh, and that is a lost art in this business. I know. But, you know, they... Like, you know, and a lot of them don't know and they haven't been broken. Right. And the the business has changed and it will continue to change and evolve. And one thing I learned in ECW is that the business will change and evolve. But if you want to survive in it, you have to be willing to change and evolve with it, too. But only to a certain extent. There are certain basic fundamentals we should always adhere to, mm-hmm. yes. you know, and and it's sad that they don't anymore. I think this is great. I, I, you know, it's. I tell the guys, this is a multi-billion-dollar industry. I want a part of that billion. Don't you want a part of that billion? So we should be doing yeah. trying to help the business instead of continually hurt it. Wow, I don't hey. get. It. I think that's a great place to uh, end part one, Chris. What do you think? <laughs> we never. Well, got I, to talk I, yeah, no. I, Sorry, guys. We no, no. We no. have so talk to you about and and well, uh keep going if you want to do a part three uh i i can't i can't well you know what we're gonna come right back next week with with part two and and yeah like you know, said, we so might have a part three see this this is just so great because i feel like these conversations are best when they're organic like we we, ha- we, we have topics we want to hit on but then to me Sorry. i i yeah i feel like the best part is when you just you get into these conversations and it just it, it naturally evolves into something. And I yeah, I think that's a great place to to stop for part one because I know that we've got at least a part two and oh, shit, yeah. who know shit, who knows? We may have a part three. So let me get a cord. My phone's getting low. I'm gonna go grab a cord here. That's all right. And you know what? We're actually I think gonna disconnect because we had a couple of issues with your uh with your feed. And uh, and Chris will probably have you come back in and, and rejoin us for part two. Correct. Okay. Chris? Yep. Right. Yep. We'll uh, we'll have him uh, go ahead and reconnect here shortly for part two. But that being said, here, Mick, I thought very conversational. And again, we're 
we focus on the old AWA, but at the same time, I feel like this is one of those conversations that we need to have. It's one of those conversations because it's all out there. Let's be brutally honest, Mick. It's out there to talk about how the business has changed and to talk to Jerry about that. I, I think is it's important because he was pretty frank. I mean, he was pretty frank. And if he's saying that to us, I can only imagine maybe the information that he's trying to convey to the talent in the AEW locker room. I loved every minute of it. I could not have mm-hmm. asked for a, you know, a, a better free flowing conversation. Yes. And again, like you say, Chris, when somebody like me or somebody like you voices an opinion about the business, you know, and, and the way things should or should not be. Yeah. People listen, but you know, sometimes it's who were you? Well, you know what? Jerry Lynn just told you, and uh, I am I, I'm a proud Jerry Lindmark. So uh, oh, I, I I am too because I know that we're going to get into a couple things in ECW and and I, that's I mean that that the, his ECW run and his uh, matches with RVD that stuff that makes like the skin the the hair on my arms go up just thinking uh, about that run and what happened at Roy Wilkins Auditorium in St Paul so. Uh, we're going to go ahead and end it here. Uh, we're not going to do any shout outs. We're going to go ahead and, and we're going to push that off to the, uh, the next one. I uh, do want to thank seventh Avenue pizza as well that you can see up there. Seventh Avenue pizza.com. Uh, Check it out. It's great frozen pizza. You can get it all over the Metro. Uh, just to, and, and let us know. I mean, take a picture. Uh, if you've got, uh, if you've got your, your pizza, go ahead and take a picture of the pizza. If you've got uh, AWA Unleashed swag from Soda Stick, go ahead and take a picture. We'll get a, you know, we'll get you on the podcast. Take a picture. Let us know where you're from, who your favorite wrestler is, uh, your favorite AWA wrestler, and uh, also Mick as well. Uh, big news regarding the AWA reunion number two. Number two, it will be October 29th, Embassy Suites in Bloomington, Minnesota, on American Boulevard. We'll have all the information on our various websites, and we'll talk more about it next week.